Well, I ask you this at this time last year. And I want to ask you again this year, seeing how it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, the last Sunday in November, how many of you are already ready for Christmas? Raise your hand. Yeah? Got your Christmas decorations up? Anybody? Do? Good jump on your Christmas shopping? Anybody? You ahead on Christmas shopping? Okay. How many of you have made the, the menu? How many of you have the menu planned for Christmas lunch or Christmas dinner? Yeah. Few of you, maybe not that far yet for some of you. Well, even for those of you in here who are not ready, Christmas is still on your minds, am I right? Because there's hardly a place you can turn this time of year not be reminded of it. And because this is the case, because we're just bombarded this time of year with all things Christmas, whether it be ads or sales or movies or music or decor, because Christmas is on all of our minds, whether we want it to be or not, I thought it appropriate on this last Sunday in November for us to begin our Christmas sermon series. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at Luke's take on the Christmas story. Last year, if you remember that far back, we uh, focused on Matthew's Christmas story. And so uh, this year, I wanted us to discuss Luke's Christmas story from Luke 1 and 2. But before we, we begin, we need to talk a little bit about the, the background of this book. This will help you in our sermon for today and for the ones coming up in the next few weeks. First, let's talk about the, the author. Luke wrote the book. Those from the early church were all in agreement that he was the author of both the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And a little bit about Luke, for those of y'all who don't know, Luke was a, a secondary figure in the Scriptures. Unlike Matthew, he was not one of the original twelve. Luke was a Gentile and was a physician. As uh, Paul closes out his letter to the Colossians, he makes mention of this. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So Luke was a physician, highly educated, probably one of the most intelligent of the writers in the New Testament. Uh, his two books, Luke and, and the book of Acts, are considered by Greek scholars to be the best Greek in the New Testament. Many scholars are also impressed with the historical precision in which Luke writes. So Luke is a very smart guy, all right? He was also a loyal supporter of the Apostle Paul and a very close friend of his. And uh, Paul makes mention of him in several of his letters, okay? So that's who wrote it. Luke wrote the book. Who's he writing to? Well, let's look at this, the audience. Like the book of Acts, Luke dedicates this gospel to an individual named Theophilus. And though he's only mentioned in the, in the prefaces of both books, many believe Theophilus was a, a close friend and close acquaintance of uh, Luke's. And some say that he was uh, probably a Gentile convert to Christianity. 
and he probably wanted just more information about who Jesus was and what he had accomplished during his earthly ministry. And some also believe that Theophilus uh, may have provided financial support for Luke in ministry, which is why Luke dedicates both books to this man. So he dedicates this writing to this person, to this individual named Theophilus, but he and, of course, God, who is ultimately responsible for Luke's writing here, they have a bigger audience in mind as well. The date of the book of Luke. Conservative scholars date this writing after Mark, but before the book of Acts, which would have been around 61 to 62 A.D., and the type of book, Luke is a gospel book, one of four gospel books. I know I've said this before, but it needs to be said again. When we talk about four gospel books, it's important that we note here, we're not talking about four separate gospels. There's only one gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is a singular message, yet there are four separate records of it. There are four different perspectives, each written with different audiences in mind from different authors, yet each are telling the singular story of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of each gospel book is to inform us, the reader, of specific things about Jesus' person and work that are beneficial for our salvation. They're books that give us a, a saving knowledge of God. That's what the gospel books are meant to do. Now, when, with that being said, let me talk a moment about Luke's specific reason for writing his book. Though I said these books are, are, are similar in their content, though they all tell of the saving work of the Lord Jesus, it's also important to remember as we read the gospel books that each one is in fact unique. Each book is written with a certain audience in mind and each of the writers purposefully emphasize different aspects of Jesus' person and work. For example, as we said last year, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and the purpose of Matthew's writing is to stress the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the one who was promised to save. He is the one who has come to save, and he is the victorious king who will return. The Gospel of Mark is written to Christians in Rome, and Mark portrays Jesus as a miracle worker and as an obedient and suffering servant who calls for his followers to take up their cross and follow him. We spent most of this past year in John, didn't we? And in his gospel, John focuses more upon Jesus' deity and writes about him coming from heaven to earth with the divine message of salvation. Well, Luke writes primarily for Gentiles. And Luke's focus is upon the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Luke portrays Jesus as the perfect man who offers salvation to both Jew and Gentile alike. This is good news for us, right? Mostly Gentile audience in here, non-Jewish people. And Luke goes to great lengths in his book to emphasize the fact that God does not show favoritism. 
His gospel does not discriminate. In Luke's book, he records how Jesus often reaches out for those on the fringes of society, the downcast, the rejects. In his book, you have chapter after chapter of outcasts coming to Jesus. He's approached by a leper and a paralytic in Luke 5. He's approached by a prostitute in Luke 7, a wicked tax collector named Zacchaeus, remember him? Luke 19. And the list goes on and on. And all throughout Luke's gospel, from the first announcement of of him coming down from heaven, the incarnation, to him ascending to heaven, Jesus is at the center of everything in Luke's gospel. Songs are sung in praise to him. Miracles are performed by him. The teachings in Luke are from him. Opposition is directed toward him, and the cross is the path for him. Luke's central focus from start to finish is on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're just going to look at the first chapter and not even a half in this study over the next five weeks... We're going to focus primarily on the events that surrounded the announcement about in the birth of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. All right, so so let's get started. Let's jump in to our study here. Let's look at Luke's Christmas story. Let me begin like with this here. Parents, I don't know if this is uh, true of your kids or not, but ours love Christmas movies. They do. And not just around Christmas time. For example, it was July of this year. It's the middle of July. And I come in after taking Edie Rose to a pool party. And I come in, and Ava is watching Elf in the living room, and Edie wants to go to her bedroom and watch Rudolph. It's it's July. It's 100 degrees outside. They're watching Christmas movies. And we we have a bunch at home to choose from. And one of the classics is this one here. Charlie Brown Christmas. Anybody seen this one? It's a classic, right? Yeah, I like that one. And uh, for those of y'all who who haven't seen it, you know that throughout this movie, Charlie Brown is trying to discover the real meaning of Christmas. And I, I checked here recently, and I saw the movie was made in 1965. It's been 48 years, and that question is still asked, isn't it? each and every year around Christmas. And we as Christians, we know it's an important question to have answered, isn't it? Well, let me ask you this. What is the meaning of Christmas? Is it about gifts? Is it about time off from work and school? Is it a time for parties? Is it about decorations? Is it ultimately about being Benevolent? What is Christmas all about? Well, Luke answers this for us in his gospel in Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there now. Luke chapter 1. In the first part of this chapter, Luke explains to us what the Christmas story is all about. First, he tells us this. The Christmas story is a true story. It's a true story. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke says this. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In this passage, Luke states his purpose for writing this gospel. He, he tells Theophilus that he has written this orderly account so that Theophilus would know and have confidence in the things that God has accomplished in and through his son, the Lord Jesus. And, and notice what he says here to help Theophilus along. Notice what he says to convince him. First, he appeals to the fact that these events happen in real time. He says, I have followed the things I'm about to report to you very closely for some time. And what I've done for you is I have written these things down in the time and the place in which they happened. He says, I have written an orderly account for you. Now, why does he make this point? Why mention this? Because Luke wants Theophilus and his greater audience to know that these events, get this, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, they took place in real time, in a real place in history. He tells Theophilus, God has accomplished these works among us, Theophilus. In other words, he says, the works Christ has done, they have been accomplished in our time. In and around our generation. And Luke goes to great lengths to make this point. When telling about the birth of Jesus, Luke says in in verse 1 of chapter 2, in those days, listen to this, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, why mention Caesar Augustus and why mention this event here? Why? Why is this significant? Because Luke is showing us that this is the time in which Jesus was born. He shows us during the rule of this historical leader. And at the time when this historical decree was issued, Jesus entered into this world as one of us. He descended down. He took on flesh at this time. Folks, this event happened in history. The Christmas story is a true story. It happened in real time in a real place over 2,000 years ago. This event that changed the world happened in history. Some, when they hear the Christmas story, they lump it in with the Christmas carol, "'Twas the night before Christmas." They view it as a myth, as a tall tale. No, listen, this story, it happened. This incredible event, the incarnation, The miraculous conception and the virgin birth happened in real time, in a real place in history. Legan Duncan said this of Luke's gospel. He said, Luke's work of this gospel is not just a story. Listen, it's a true story. 
It contains history. Not only does Luke make this point that this story is true because it happened in history, but he also stresses the fact that this story is true because it's witnessed by many. It's true because it happened in history and it's witnessed by many. Look at verse 2 again. Luke says, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He says, not only did these events happen in real place in a real time in history, but they're witnessed by many. He says, there are many who were there, who saw these things for themselves. Luke says that there were men and women who witnessed Christ's birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And he also tells Theophilus, many of these people are out proclaiming these truths today. Wouldn't that have been awesome to live in that time period? There were many eyewitnesses who were still alive in Luke and Theophilus' day. Many of them were out preaching this message. Can you imagine what that would have been like? They were there when Jesus fed 5,000. They were there when he calmed the storm. They were there when he healed the sick. They were there when he was crucified, dead and buried, and they were there when he rose again. They were there. That's who Luke appeals to. In fact, Luke's book is made up of, of these testimonies. Luke traveled around. He took these testimonies from eyewitnesses who were there, and he wrote us this account here. He says, I've met them. I've heard from them. There are sharp-minded, godly men and women out there who have seen and heard these things. He says, all I'm doing is I'm reporting to you what they have seen and heard. He says, this book is an account. It's a, it's a compilation of these testimonies from those who were there, who saw Jesus with their own eyes, who felt him with their own hands, and who heard from him with their own ears. Luke's Christmas story that we're going to be looking at and talking about over the next several weeks in here, it's a true story, folks. It happened in real time, in a real place in history over 2,000 years ago. Second thing we learn from Luke's story here is not only is it a true story, but it's an unlikely story. Christmas story is an unlikely story. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, if you lived in those days, no doubt you had heard of King Herod. He was the king of Judea. But chances are good, unless you live close by or unless you worked with him or you were related to one of them, chances are good you would not have known Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, upon hearing that, some of you are probably thinking, well, Zechariah was a priest, right? He wasn't that insignificant. He was a priest. Well, this is where context is key. Get this. In that day, priests like Zechariah were a dime a dozen. There were tons of priests. In fact, I read where there were more priests than there were tasks to be done. So Zechariah was just one among many priests. But get this. There's only one king of Judea, and that king is Herod. So his position, his notoriety, far surpassed that of any priest. Many believed him to be far more significant than somebody like Zechariah and Elizabeth. But get this. Not in God's economy. 
Isn't it interesting how Luke just glosses over Herod to center in upon this priest? In the Christmas story, Herod is a pawn. Though he is the king, he was a pawn in the plan of God. But this unknown individual, this unlikely priest, this this guy who was overlooked by most is God's chosen instrument. And this is always the way it is with God. You realize that? Do y'all realize that? You know, folks look at us and say, not important, insignificant, not worth mentioning. Am I right? I mean, what dominates the news in our world today? The goings-on in Washington, the social status of celebrities in Hollywood, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but what do we know about the faithful? God is concerned with the lifestyles of His children. He is concerned with those whom He has chosen as His instruments, those who are making Him known and advancing His kingdom. Though the world may view you and me as being obscure and insignificant, folks, in God's economy, kings are pawns. And the unlikely are his chosen instruments. And that's very much the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Look at where we see this. In the following verses, we see they play a very important part in God's Christmas story and in God's greater story of redemption. Look at Zechariah's story. First, you have a timely appearance. Look at verses 6 through 12. Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, like I said earlier, priests at this time in this... In the, in the first century, they were a dime a dozen. There were more priests than there were jobs to do. And in one commentary I read, there were so many priests that, that you had probably one opportunity in your lifetime to do what Zechariah is doing here. It's probably his only time to get to go into the temple and offer incense, which was what he did was he would offer incense and then he would pray on behalf of his nation. And they would stand outside when they'd see the incense coming up, they would pray. And this was a very special task that the priest performed. And and I read in Bible Knowledge Commentary, it says this, because of the large number of priests, this would have been the only time in Zechariah's life when he was allowed to perform this task. So think about this for a minute. This is really cool. This is a big day for Zechariah, wasn't it? We learned that he selected for his one and only time to enter into the temple and offer incense. And it's on this big day, during this important task, that he's visited by an angel. Wow. This is not just any angel, is it? Look at verse 19. 
the angel says, I am Gabriel. This is Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to Daniel to prophesy of God's future redemption, the same angel that later appears to Mary to announce the birth of Christ. And we'll see here in a moment, he has another important message here to deliver to Zechariah, a message of redemption. There's something else I want to mention here. Do you know the last time we have a record of Gabriel appearing to someone? It's in the book of Daniel. It's in the book of Daniel. Remember in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Gabriel appears to Daniel and he tells him of the coming of the anointed one, which is a messianic prophecy of the coming of Christ. And we don't see or hear from Gabriel again until right here in Luke chapter 1 when he appears before Zechariah to announce the fulfillment of this prophecy he gave hundreds of years earlier to this great prophet. Notice here, you have this common, everyday, average priest performing this annual task who has this incredible encounter and is given this extremely important message once again, we see God's Christmas story is an unlikely story, isn't it? We see that though God often treats kings as pawns, we see he delights in using unlikely people as key instruments in his work of redemption. So it's an unlikely story, isn't it? Not only do you have a timely appearance, look here, you have an answered request. An answered request in verse 13 of Zechariah's story. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Notice here the angel gets very personal with Zechariah, doesn't he? Not only does he go on to give him this magnificent message of redemption, but he also gives him a personal word of comfort. The angel says, God has heard yours and Elizabeth's prayer. Though God is about to do this incredible work of epic proportions in and through his son, the Lord Jesus, though he's about to send him to accomplish salvation for all those who believe, notice here, God takes time to concern himself with the personal struggles of this priest. Isn't that amazing? God knew Zachariah and Elizabeth had been praying for years for a child and we're told in verse 7 that they were advanced in years, so they had probably been praying for this a long time. And I know this is a big deal today. I know there are many couples today who are unable to have kids and are grieved by the fact that they cannot, and, and understandably so, but you cannot imagine what it was like for a Jew in the first century. Pedigree was so very important to the Jews so to not have a ton of kids to carry on your legacy, it was devastating to them in that day. So Gabriel appears to Zechariah, and he gives him some incredible news. He lets him know God has heard your prayer and is going to answer it by giving you and your wife a son. And their son is not just any son, is it? Notice Gabriel says he's going to be a favored son. He's a favored son. Look at verses 14 through 15. 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's crazy, isn't it? What an incredible statement there. Notice here, there is going to be widespread and divine acceptance of their son. He says, you guys are going to have a son and you're going to rejoice at his birth, but so are many others. Look at verse 15. He says he will be great before the Lord. Now, now let me ask you this. Did their son grow up to be this, this powerful and impressive leader who was looked to by everyone, respected by everyone? Not quite, right? Though he was loved and favored by God, Many thought he was crazy, dangerous. Though Zechariah and Elizabeth were unlikely people, so was their son. They're given this incredible promise in Luke chapter 1, and then nothing really happens with their son for another 30 years. When the time comes for John's ministry to begin, many view him as half crazy and dangerous. John the Baptist, like his mother and father before him, was an unlikely instrument in God's kingdom story. He's from the backwoods. He ate weird food. He dressed funny, got under a lot of people's skin. He's a guy probably many of us would have distanced ourselves from today. Many of the religious leaders did. Yet he grows up to be great before the Lord. Jesus said of John, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. He's the one who prepares the way for the Lord. So we learn here, Christmas story, it's an unlikely story. We learn here that this unlikely guy from an unlikely family is the one whom God uses to prepare the world for Christ. God answers this prayer of this insignificant and ordinary couple and gives them a son. He raises this son up from obscurity and uses him to bear witness of and prepare the way for the Lord. Folks, as amazing as this story is, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? This is always the way it is with God throughout the scriptures. He does this throughout the scriptures. All throughout this book, we read story after story about God using the unlikely for his purposes. Folks, God delights in using the insignificant and the ordinary for his kingdom purposes. And this should encourage us, right? Don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings in here, but isn't that who we are? Are we not insignificant? and ordinary by the world's standards? Do any of you have the paparazzi waiting for you when you come home this afternoon? As far as I know, we don't have any celebrities in here, world leaders, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. But get this, I know this about those of y'all in this room. Let this sink in. This room is filled with people whom God is focused on. who God wants to use. Believers in God's economy, you are the focus. You are significant. That's all that really matters, isn't it? 
So the Christmas story is a true story. It's an unlikely story, and it's also a redemptive story. Listen to the work Zechariah and Elizabeth's son grows up to do. Gabriel tells Zechariah, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In verses 16 through 17, Gabriel is telling Zechariah that his son is going to be used by God to prepare the way of the Lord. He compares him to Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in all the Bible. And he says, in the spirit of Elijah, your son John is going to prepare the hearts of the wicked for the Lord. How's he going to do that? Well, in the power of the spirit, right? But we also learn as we read on that he does it by preaching repentance. Why repentance? Why is this John's message? Pretty simple, right? Because sin is our biggest problem. Sin is the one problem we all have. We've all turned away from God We have all chosen to to go at life on our own and the only way for us to be made right with God is if we repent of our sin, turn away from that sin, and turn back to God. Folks, this is why Christ came. This is why he came. He came to make that possible. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He descended down to become one of us. He lived among us. He gave his life for us so that through his death and resurrection, we could be made right with God. So that if we place our faith in him, our sin could be applied to him and in turn, his righteousness could be applied to us. Folks, that's what the Christmas story is all about. That is the Christmas story. As I've said in the past few years here, when we're looking at the Christmas story, when you think about Christmas this year, the cross should be on your mind. When we think of Christmas, we should be reminded of our sinfulness and our need of salvation. That's why Christ came. We're reminded of this in Zechariah's story, of our sinfulness and our need. Look at verse 18. Look at what happens with Zechariah. After Gabriel gives him this wonderful promise, we're told this, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now think about this for a minute. You have this awesome angel who scares Zechariah almost out of his skin who appears to him and makes this wonderful promise, and Zechariah responds in unbelief. That's unbelievable. Notice what Gabriel says. He says, I am Gabriel. He's in trouble now, isn't he? I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Notice what happens in verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So notice here, the promise Gabriel makes comes to pass just like Gabriel said, right? proclaiming God's word. Of course it's going to come true. But the prophet Zechariah is punished for his unbelief. Gabriel says, okay, you're not going to believe me? It's still going to happen, but you're not going to be able to speak. You're going to stay silent and watch it be fulfilled. Maybe some of you are here this morning, and you, like Zechariah, are guilty of the sin of unbelief. Maybe you've heard this story over and over again, yet you refuse to believe it. You refuse to believe that God has become one of us and that he has come down to accomplish salvation for us. If this is you, folks, I urge you this morning to rethink your position. Folks, this story is true. There was a time in history... When God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, left the riches of heaven, stepped out of eternity, and into the world he created as one of us. And he lived the perfect life for us on our behalf. And he gave his life up for us in our place. And he was raised so that we, through him, might walk in newness of life. That's what the Christmas story is all about. And this work was accomplished whether you want to, to believe it or not. The question is, what say you? Are you going to personally believe it and receive it? Are you going to benefit from the work that Christ has already done for you by repenting of your sins and responding to him in faith? Or will you, like Zechariah, be punished for your unbelief? Pray if you have not, you choose the first option. Pray you choose to repent of your sin, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray.